everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Ruby Rogues Podcast. This week on our panel, we have Dave Kimura. Hey, everyone. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. Just a reminder, go check out the DevRev, thedevrev.com. We have a special guest this week, and that's Nathan... Oh, boy. How do you say your last name, Nathan? Reese. Reese. I never would have gotten there. Yeah, no one does. (laughs) Where's the C? This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give you full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. Do you want to introduce cool. yourself real quick? Sure. Um, hey, Therese, I'm a programmer in the Milwaukee area. Work for a big corporation that got hired right after college. And now I'm um, trying to kind of sneak Ruby in whatever I can and uh, just exploring different ways I can do that. Gotcha. Yeah, that's what you emailed me about. And I was like, that sounds really interesting just to talk about a Ruby in like large enterprise type places. And yeah, how to sneak it in, how to, how to, you know, affect, I guess, some change in the way that they view uh, those different options. So do you want to talk a little bit real, really quickly about sort of the, the situation you're in? I mean, I remember when I worked, at, I worked at a university, that was my job in college, I worked for the university I was attending. And uh, yeah, everything was Java. And they all had kind of a, a, a set stack that they used. And it was really hard to deviate from that in a lot of ways. Yeah, I'd say um, even more so you'll have in bigger corporations that the technology stack is very controlled, especially for their production apps that are facing their clients. So trying to get changes in that is is very difficult. But where I've had that success is kind of automating certain things, making little side projects to just a lot of manual tasks that either our customer support team was doing or our operations team was doing, making those automated so that just to clean up like a lot of manual error or just saving time. So trying to sneak it in that way has been where I've had the most success, where it's not official production code, but um, still can be very useful. And I found out that most of your managers, they really don't care like what language you're using as long as it's productive. So you can show some success of like saving time. Um, they're going to be a lot more um point to just accept it and, you know, not really question where it's written, uh, especially if it's not official production code that has to go through all the layers of review. And um, so. It's always fun sneaking in a new technology stack into a company. Uh, (laughs) When I was first hired on to my current employer, we were a heavy .NET shop. And I kind of silently introduced Ruby into some proof of concepts that I was playing with of some potential uh, money generators. And then, you know, that quickly led to, you know, becoming products within the company. And, you know, it just kind of grew from there. So it's still mainly a .NET shop. But then I introduced a large aspect of Ruby into there. 
And then once we were acquired by Sage, uh, Sage is much more of a Ruby on Rails shop. So, you know, I kind of fit nicely into that ecosystem. And, you know, they still had some .NET and Java stuff going on, but you know, it was, you know, kind of worked out well for me <laughs> in the long run. But it's always fun and challenging to get the buy-in. And I couldn't even imagine being in a, you know, banking or financial environment like that to try to introduce something new. Because any banks that I've ever worked with technology-wise are so finicky about, yeah. you know, sure. we're only going to have Internet Explorer 5.5 installed on our computers because that's the only thing secure. We're not going to allow anything else. Like, but Chrome is pretty safe. But no. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you, well, you definitely get a lot of uh, pushback when you try to, especially anything in, in official production, it's, it's really hard to, like, uh, I tried getting Ruby installed in our server and it's like a mountain of paperwork just to, you know, do some <laughs> DevOps automation. And it was like getting like the fifth degree of, you know, why you need this. And um, so it, it can be challenging for sure. Yeah, well, and it seems like any sufficiently large system. I mean, when I worked at the university, that, what was that? Like 2001 to 2006. And so everything was still mainframe based. And to a certain degree, I, I still have friends over there. I think some of that stuff's still running because it's just hard to replace. And so, you know, you, you've got all these systems out there. I mean, I can imagine like, you know, Walmart seems to be fairly progressive as far as their technology goes. You know, you, you have Walmart labs and they're doing interesting stuff with JavaScript and things. But I would not be shocked if they have some systems that they just don't quite know how to replace because it does so many things and they're so complicated that, you know, it, you can replace it kind of piecemeal. But the, even then, the integrations are hairy, hairy messes. And it's just, yeah. I, I mean, I, I, I can see why some of this stuff gets some resistance. But at the same time, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm not out there. And most of the people I know coming into the field aren't out there looking for a sexy job writing, you know, Java or C++ or, you know, even older languages like Fortran or COBOL. And, and a lot of these mainframes, that's what they're running. We're a mainframe shop and it's, um, it's pretty painful, like making any kind of changes. There's, there's no automated tests. There's no um, like concern to like refactoring to make your code look better because everything is so brittle that, you know, you try to change as little as possible. So anytime that you have to go in there to make a bug fix, it's it's quite painful. And it seems like that mentality was kind of taken forward through even when we moved to Java that a lot of the programmers, they thought, oh, we can just train them on Java. And, you know, they don't have any automated tests, even in our new Java system. And even the the code is like still like the methods are like 200 lines long. And um, so it's uh, it's kind of frustrating. But um our companies certainly have an initiative to move off the mainframe. So they see that, you know, all this legacy code is, is causing them a lot of pain. So they're trying to move there. Um, it's just not going very smoothly or as fast. It's a big project, but sometimes it's hard for old dogs to learn new, learn new tricks, it seems like. Yeah. So, I mean, this is an interesting problem to solve. I don't know that you're necessarily solving it with Ruby over there, but I mean, how, how much... How much work is it to, I mean, how long do they think it's going to take to replace the mainframe? Well, we've, we've been working on a project. Uh, we bought another company that does something similar to what we're doing. And we're trying to modify it for us. And we've been working on it for three years. And it seems like we've gotten nowhere. It's still, still very waterfall type of architecture. So they're like been doing all this planning and haven't written a whole lot of working code yet. And they've just decided in the last couple of weeks that they're going to 
completely switch their philosophy. And, you know, in six months, they, now is the new thing. In six months, we're going to have a product out that's going to do it. So it's not quite clear on when, you know, things are going to be switched. But uh, they, I think they have a goal to do, I have everything done in by 2025, everything's supposed to be off the mainframe. I can't even imagine a project that takes, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten years. Yeah. Oh, but that's where you're at. So that's what you got to do. Yeah. You know, it's kind of funny how uh, even when a better technology stack or a better methodology, you know, getting away from waterfall design over to a agile scrum or something similar methodology, you know, it's a lot more efficient. You get you know, less bugs introduced because you're constantly pushing up new revisions and all that good stuff. It's funny how companies will get scared or they don't get the progress or results that they want. And then they just fall back into their old way of doing things where for the past 30, 40 years, they've seen the progress that they've made with those methodologies and they just won't switch over to something new because you still have some higher ups up there that are senior and they say, Let's just do it the way we've always done it. And just how hindering to innovation that is, i.e. why they're selling Internet Explorer. Yeah, yeah but the, the flip side is, is that yeah. a lot of these companies employ people that will tell them, look, if you don't upgrade this, eventually you're going to have a security issue or, you know, some other thing come up. And then we're, we're going to have a major lawsuit on our hands or have a regulatory body come in and shut us down because we're not doing things properly. So some point, the trade-offs get to the point where it's just not worth it. Nathan also sent us an article where it was talking about how a lot of these companies have trouble hiring people to do those jobs in the first place. So, I mean, is it going to become cost prohibitive to hire somebody to go work on your COBOL code? Because I think if you offer enough money, people will go make that career transition. But how much more expensive is it going to get before it's worth it? Yeah, I'd say uh, we're definitely in the outsource model. So that's, I think, where they've been trying to mitigate that is um, having a lot of the, the programming being done in India um, just uh, to do those cost savings. Um, but I think they're still seeing just the, the tremendous cost of making changes and the, the testing and just the regression bugs that they bring in um, that the maintenance is too much. So I think that's why they're, they're pushing to get off the mainframe so that they can, uh, they can use a more modern platform. I think it's just when you have a, a large company just making any kind of changes just extremely hard. Mm-hmm. So where have you been sneaking Ruby in? Where does Ruby play into this? I um, I started out pretty small, just trying to. I learned Ruby um, in college. I played a little bit around with Ruby on Rails, and then when I got to my current job, I was looking just to automate a few things. Uh, I think it started out with just FTPing files to and from the mainframe, just trying to make a little command line application, so it'd be a little bit easier. I wouldn't have to write out the full name line and worry about connecting and. Um, I looked at doing it in my different options and I looked at doing it in bat and um, that was just painful to do. So I knew a little bit about Ruby. So I started uh, playing around with it and I was just impressed with this, the, the simplicity and the elegancy of the language. So I started writing just some, some short command line applications to uh, just move files around. And then um, I think the next thing was doing some report scraping. Um, so if we had like a, a production issue where we had to gather data from some reports, I would write a, a little Ruby script that would just pull off some key values and um, shove them into a CSV file so we could kind of tabulate them and kind of see where it was. And as that grew, I became, kind of became the, the go-to guy to do certain things. And um, 
So then uh, expanded into, um, we had a mainframe screen where for customer setups, we had to do a lot of hand entering when uh, like a, a new bank would come on, we'd have to do like anywhere between like 500 and 2000 different customer setups. And the way they would handle it in the past, they would just have, you know, customer support team. They would have like three or four of them just work through the weekend and just type them in all by hand, oh, um, you know, just to get them, make sure that they were ready to go to go on Monday morning when they, um, they started processing files. So I, uh, started playing with it. They had a little like a uh, visual basic script that you could kind of do some of the automation, but I was looking a way to connect that with uh, Excel and it was just painful trying to make that connections. Um, so I was, I investigated if there a way I could do this with Ruby and um, I discovered uh, the win OLE library that allows you to kind of, um, if a windows application has like a public, kind of like a public API allows you to connect them together. So I was able to connect the mainframe emulator to the Office Excel spreadsheet, and um, they would just enter all the customer setups in the Excel spreadsheet, and it would just manipulate uh, the mainframe emulator, entering like the keystrokes to enter them all in. So you could run like uh, 2,000 setups in 30 minutes, um, just and you wouldn't have to do anything. You just kind of let it run in the background and just double check that everything worked on there. So that was kind of like my foot in the door, really making those automation kind of spreadsheets that would link the mainframe to Excel. So once I got and I got that going, then um, I uh, kept on uh, expanding, uh, making more complicated um, automation tools. And that's where I've seen the most successes, uh, where I've actually gotten like uh, requests from other people, other team members, hey, can you, uh, can you find a way to automate this? Um, so kind of build that up and um, build some libraries, some small um, abstractions of keeping to make it easier to build new automation tools. Yeah. You know, whenever I'm looking to automate something, I figure or I ask myself, you know, is this really a good thing to automate? So I say, what happens if I have to do this a hundred times today or a thousand times? And is that going to take me much longer to do? Or is it as simple as just doing it one or two times? And if it's a really simple thing that it's not going to scale based the, the amount of time is not going to scale based on the number of iterations I have to do, then it's not really something worth automating immediately, so to speak. But if it's going to start saving hours and hours, and it's something that's going to be repeatable, so something that's going to occur more than once, you know, it's not just a one-time thing, then automation is a awesome place. And you know, since this is a Ruby podcast, I love Ruby. You know, Ruby is usually the first language that I hop to to automate such a thing. So it sounds like that was a really good time saver for you know your team there. Yeah, for sure. It's uh, they they use it pretty much on a on a weekly basis um, to add customer setups and stuff like that. So that's kind of re- very rewarding to see it being used and uh, saving other people's time. And that's uh, it's fun to kind of work. You can just you know walk down the aisle and kind of talk to your customer to see, you know, how is your program meeting their needs and, you know, where you can adjust to make it easier to save them even more time. Yeah. Yeah. I'm the same way. And in fact, um, I've, I've kind of taken things from, you know, automating this or that to actually, you know, writing a fully blown rails app to automate stuff for the, the podcasts. And so I can see a lot of the business process stuff on the back end. Or, you know, even setting up and running and automating things, you know, to prep for um, any kind of automated testing or DevOps or things like that. I mean, yeah, it, it's kind of a 
an obvious tool to reach to for that because it has so many things that are just kind of automatic and built in that you can go to for those things. So do you find yourself doing a lot of Ruby development outside of the work to automate some things at home or just side projects? So your initials are with Ruby. How has that led you in other areas? For sure. uh, I've done a few things to record uh, our Bible study lecture. So uh, just kind of automating a few of uh, the recording and rendering and uploading process of uh, distributing that. I've used uh, some little bit of uh, Ruby for that. Um, Then uh, I've used a little bit of Zapier too to automate that. So I, I really like kind of Ruby as a kind of like a little duct tape language that kind of um, hold uh, different things together. I uh, would really like to start a Rails project to kind of bone up that skill, but it's hard to kind of um, get uh dedicate the time. It's uh it's fun to write down, a, you know, get a script, you know, spend two or three hours on a script and see the immediate results of Rails. It's a lot better than other um, frameworks, but still it's going to be uh, a couple of days or weeks before um, you get that that same uh, kind of feedback of um, of something working and useful. Um, taking that next step is uh, is uh, something I really want to focus on next. Yeah, it's cool that you're incorporating it in other areas of your life. My wife's always like, "You can't solve everything with code, David." <laughs> <No>. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, it's awesome having uh, supportive spouses that will encourage your coding sometimes. <laughs> I feel like I have a superpower. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. It's, it's kind of crazy even at work. Like you're working with, I'm working with all these other developers and like they'll have a, like a problem where it's, um, will take them, you know, a long time to, you know, figure out the doing they're doing this manual process. And I'm thinking, you know, you're a programmer. Don't you, you know, want to use some code to like finish, you know, speed this up. And it's like, if it's not on the main, you know, production code, like it's like they like lose all ability to code for anything else. So I found like, <laughs> you know, I can write some little apps, not only for like our, our support team, but also for, you know, other developers that, you know, they're either too busy or they just uh, don't think it's worth their time to try to spend the time, you know, invest a little bit of time up front to automate uh, something that they're doing. This episode is brought to you by TripleByte. Applying to programming jobs sucks. You have to put the right keywords in your resume, you spend hours and hours on the phone screens and take home projects, and that's assuming the company even responds to your application. Well, if you're a software engineer, TripleByte can help. They work with over 400 top tech companies from big names like Dropbox and Adobe to exciting startups. You do one brief online interview with them, and if you do well, you go straight to final interviews with the company on their platform. It's like the common app for software developers. TripleByte does not look at your resume or where you went to school. All they care about is if you can code. I've helped dozens of software developers with various credentials get jobs, and this looks like a terrific way for you to get in and get interviewed and get a job without a lot of the hassle and overhead. You can go check them out at triplebyte.com rogues. That's triplebyte.com, byte as in eight bits. As a special offer for listeners of this show, if you take a job through TripleByte, they'll offer you a $1,000 signing bonus. So besides automation, DevOps kinds of things, I mean, are there other places where you're sneaking it in? Those are the main places. I had dreams of building a, like a Ruby and Rails app that would like be like a dashboard for our customers and kind of be able to push some customer setups. The problem I've run into is um, being able to get Ruby having Rails installed on a, on a server. And um, they're really cautious about what goes on there. Everything's behind a firewall, so you can't just do a 
gem install uh, rails, you know, all that's blocked off, um, segregated from the internet. So uh, can anything installed on that? So um, mostly it's been uh, automation scripts and um, stuff, uh, stuff like that along those lines. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Um, I worked for, so my last full-time job, which was still almost eight and a half years ago, it, it was all uh, segregated stuff because we were dealing with government data. We were a small company. We were using Ruby on Rails. But yeah, when we deployed stuff, um, we would tell the IT guys what version of what gem we wanted. They'd go download the, the tarball off of rubygems.org and then they'd yep. package it up as an RPM package and then they would deploy it using um, whatever version of Linux we had running on the servers using their essentially their packaging system. And so it was just, yeah. Crazy. <laughs> and so, yeah. yeah, there was no gem install. <laughs> I, I can't even use gem install on my local machine because we've got so many proxy servers and stuff like that. So I have to download each gem manually and oh, wow. install it locally. And if it has any C extensions, you have to get uh, permissions to you know install wow. anything with, uh, with a C extension. So you have to fill out a form and give an explanation why you need that. So like, if you just want to try out a gem, it's like, Uh, Maybe I'll just write the code myself because it's such a hassle to install, you know, different gems depending on what you want to do. Wow. Wow. That's, that seems very hindering to productivity, but I understand why they do that kind of stuff because all it takes is one mistake or one wrong gem and, you know, you compromise security at the company and that could end up meaning, you know, a lot of end users affected. Yeah. I mean, look at Home Depot, Verizon, Equifax. You know, all these places, I'm sure they're having second thoughts of how they do their stuff around there. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, the, unfortunately, and, and I'm not speaking for Nathan's employer, I don't even know who they are, but uh, at some of these companies, they're more concerned about the PR fallout, though, than that there was actually a data breach. Yeah. Yeah, so a lot of times it uh, seems like it's security theater where they're, you know... That is a great just, term. Just uh, <laughs> pretending to, uh, you know... You know, they're checking off things in a box and then like yep. the actual security, you know, stuff that can improve like uh, is just kind of ignored. So it's just, you know, a box that they have to check. And whereas like they don't consider the cost of, you know, certain security measures that probably don't add a whole lot of value. Yeah. So one thing I'm wondering, and I don't mean to put you on the spot and you can tell me, you know what, I'm not going to answer that and we'll just edit this out. But a lot of folks, when they find themselves in your position, right, I'm working for a company where, you know, a big Java or .NET shop, um, large enterprise, it's hard to change. You know, I'm kind of sneaking it in where I can. Eventually, they get to the point where it's like, you know what, I just love Ruby so much. I want to go work somewhere where they use Ruby all the time. And they wind up switching jobs. And so I'm wondering, I, I guess the question is, is how long do you keep slipping this in under the under the hood until eventually you go, you know what, I'd be happier somewhere else. For sure. And I think that's, that's kind of where I'm at. Like, um, either I want like the freedom to, you know, do this full time or, you know, a majority of my time or, uh, you know, try to find a a job elsewhere. And um, I think what I've gotten is that, you know, this is great. You can do it on your own time, but you still got to do your your other duties. So it's Mm -hmm. never going to be a majority of your time. Um, The challenge I've been finding is, getting a job elsewhere is that um is that like i don't have a you know ruby app production ruby app so uh interviewing with other uh jobs it's it's challenging to find a place that's willing to take a chance on someone that's 
hasn't been in a, a Ruby and Rails strap that um, you know has three years on a production ready app. And um, and that's the I think another downfall is that at my job I don't have a senior Ruby programmer that can kind of come aside and teach me. You know, you could do this better this way. So it's a lot of um, just figuring it out on my own and hoping that it it works. But I I'd like that mentorship to kind of you know beef up my skills and to you know learn how to be a better programmer and um, if you're in a, a shop that's still largely .NET or Ruby based or, or um, Java based, you're, I don't think you're it's gonna be really challenging to kind of uh, get those skills. And luckily today there are so many resources out there to help you learn new things. Uh, I remember when I first started Ruby, you know, there wasn't other than a few books, there wasn't really much out there to really get you into web development. But the world's changed so much, and now the number of resources out there are so abundant, you know, even depending on whatever kind of learning style you have. So I'd say just, you know, keep at it, keep learning Ruby in your own time, keep, you know, using it to make your life better. And one day it'll be your job. Yeah. Well, and this is, this is the kind of stuff that I've been uh, harping on, on DevRev. <laughs> and so I, I may put my DevRev hat on for a minute, but a lot of times, and, and I don't know if you've actually been out there, you know, looking at Ruby jobs or not, but a lot of times we convince ourselves that it won't work. And so, you know, you're, you're, you're sitting there thinking, you know what, I don't have a lot of production Ruby experience. And so who would hire me? And it turns out there are a lot of companies that just want somebody with a good level of experience that has, you know, at least a passable knowledge of Ruby, which it sounds like you have, that, you know, they can bring in and teach you how they do things. And they'd take you over somebody that has a lot of Ruby experience that they're just not convinced is going to work well with them. And so if you haven't looked, I would encourage you to actually go look if that's the direction you want to go. Or if you want to continue to, you know, try and make the change where you're at. I mean, that that makes sense too. Just just keep in mind that, you know, ultimately one way or the other, hopefully you're working toward wherever you want to wind up at. And I would also say, look at the positives of where you're currently at. Sometimes I wish I could limit you know, what gems that, that get added into a project. Because I think for a long time, people have been so quick to say, oh, there's a gem for that. Well, it's not been maintained in, you know, three years. But you know what? That's okay, because it's not that big. <laughs> and they just add it in. And then next thing you know, that gem is a breaking change when you go to upgrade your Rails application. And now you have to try to extract this gem that you've heavily embedded into your application out just so you can upgrade to rail, you know, newer version of rails. So, you know, there are some positives there, you know, it kind of makes you have to research and see what's in the core Ruby library that, you know, so much is in there already that, you know, you can just do yourself. Dave, you're the only one dealing with those kinds of breaking changes. I promise. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I need to practice my evil laugh after I say stuff like that. (laughs) But yeah, yeah. there's, there's some definite benefits to having a large corporation. Usually that, you know, you can stay in your job like most people mm-hmm. in my group. They've been there for, I'm the young guy and been there 10 years. And most people have been there 15, 20 years. So if you like having a stable job, you know, I'm not the typical developer. That seems like you're jumping jobs every two years, the, the next hot startup. That part doesn't appeal to me, but um, working yeah. with Ruby really does. So I, I definitely uh, see the costs and the benefits of, of where I am at. Yeah, 100%. The other thing is, is that I've worked for large companies and small companies. And it's not just the stable job, but the larger companies have almost always had better benefits. Like the, mm-hmm. the health plan's better, the, you know, they offer you more days off, they, 
they have kind of a, how do I put it? It, they had career tracks at the one, at the one company I'm thinking of, which was EMC Corporation. I'll just drop the name. Um, they acquired a company I was working for. And so it was like, yeah, you can go the, the technician, technical programmer type route, or you can go the management route. And they had tracks, right? It was like, you do these kinds of things for a while, and then we'll promote you so that you can do these other kinds of things for a while, and then we'll promote you to, you know, and they had tiers. And, and so it was, it was really clear, like where you could wind up and how you could get there. But yeah, they, they tend to have a, a lot more systems for that kind of thing. Um, even if you're still inventing some of the technology. Yeah, it sounds like someone there read too many of the Choose Your Own Adventure books. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, that's the 80s and 90s of me showing. <laughs> but yeah, so yeah, there are definite trade-offs. But again, and this is something that I harp on on DevRev is essentially, you know, you, you've got to figure out where you want to go. Where, you, where do you want to be? What makes you happy? you know, what lights you up, what kind of fuels your day and, and, you know, gets you, gets you really excited to go and do whatever it is you're going to do and then, and then go be there. And so if, yeah, if your current job is giving you that, then do it. And if it's not, then figure out where you need to be in order to get that. So I am curious then, you know, you mentioned that the company you work at is still using mainframes. Are they having trouble finding mainframe developers? Is that, is that a thing at this point? Yeah, I think so. I, we, um, they're, uh, I mean, most if to find someone, uh, when I first got hired out of school, they had like a, a three month course where they taught us. I didn't have any mainframe experience. I had one semester of COBOL that was um, PC based. And I think that's, I didn't know that at the time. That's probably what got me into my job is, um, so they took us like three months to kind of teach us how to use the mainframe. And, uh, the mainframe is just so, I mean, it was built in an era where computer resources were more expensive than, you know, programmer time. So, mm-hmm. you know, you got to worry about so many details about, you know, how big your file is and how big your array is and all these kind of details that, um, so when I hear like, you know, this focus on, you know, Java's slow and not you know, resource intensive, like I'm so <laughs> on the other side of seeing how you can care so much about those nitty gritties that you don't see how much that time costs you into you know writing productive code that i'm kind of like you know screw it just let's do ruby you know something that you can enjoy and you can actually read and understand you know you know a year after you've written it but yeah i'd say that it's been a struggle to replace you know we've got two openings right now that were you know been open for over six months that we're still kind of searching to uh, candidates to hire especially in the United States that, you know, I'd say all the candidates are 40, 50 plus that we're probably going to hire that are going to have the mainframe experience. So what happens to the mainframes when there's an actual hardware problem? Because yeah, I remember, you know, 10 years ago, taking a pair of AS400 servers out to the trash and you know, trying to lift the 100 pound machines over my head into the trash bin. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean... You know, as the developers get older and, you know, they kind of retire, die off. I mean, so do these servers. Yeah, I think that's why IBM still makes lots of money because you got to have these huge contracts with them that there's problems. They're going to be there within so many hours to replace, you know, whatever goes wrong on it. And I think that's another reason they're looking to migrate of it because it's so expensive to maintain versus just a, a Unix box that you can, you know, it could be, you know, anyone, your hardware vendor running it where you're not locked down to just one vendor. Yeah. And I think as, as companies get further down the road, if they're paying attention, they're going to see that, yeah, it's becoming more and more cost prohibitive to keep these old systems in place. But 
it's also getting more expensive to replace them too because you have to have people who understand those systems. So it's it's an interesting dynamic there to be sure. And to some degree, you know, you could use Ruby or Node or something else to replace some of that. But at the end of the day, you're kind of stuck where you live. So, you know, because like you're saying, I mean, it's a 10-year project to replace the mainframe. Yeah. So it's, it's just going to get harder and harder. Was there anything else that we should talk about as far as this goes, uh, you know, with uh, Ruby and the enterprise and, and kind of sneaking Ruby in behind the scenes to get stuff done? I will take the quiet as, uh, no, there's nothing else we should discuss. <laughs> Nathan, if people want to see what you're working on these days, I'm assuming you're on GitHub and Twitter, maybe you have a blog or things like that. Wh- wh- where do they find your stuff? Yeah, they can um, check out my website, uh, nathan.reuehs.net. And, uh, get links to all my stuff on that page. Awesome. All right. Well, let's go ahead and do some picks. Dave, do you want to start us off with picks? Yeah, sure. So my first pick is safety glasses. I was down in my wood shop the other day and I was carving out some things and had a drill bit um, snag and, you know, pieces went flying and stuff. So safety glasses are important if you were working on projects. That's really my only one. It was kind of a wake-up call for me this past weekend. So luckily I had safety glasses over my glasses and stuff, but could have wound it up really bad. Shoot your eye out, kid. <laughs> it uh, is I hope Christmas. This comes out on Christmas. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, so my okay, so I'll pick I'll have another pick. Um it's a Christmas classic that I try to convince my wife that this is totally a Christmas movie. And it's Die Hard. So Die Hard has to be on everyone's watch list this Christmas season. Do I dare admit that I've Christmas never seen movie. it? Seriously? Seriously? Oh my gosh. It's a it Christmas Netflix? classic. I don't know. Like, rent it. Buy it. Gotta do it. Well, I'll see if I can uh, figure out where I can stream it. But uh, yeah, my life will be fulfilled after yep. I see it. Right? And then you'll watch Die Hard 2 and 3 and then the attempt at Die Hard 4. <laughs> the attempt at. Is that like the Star Wars prequels? It was an attempt at yeah. Star Wars yeah. movie. It's just not the same as the originals. One horrible, but not the greatest. Yeah, they did a lot better with the, the newer ones, but there are still major inconsistencies once you start to get them. Anyway, I, yeah. I, I will not rant on that. <laughs> I will not rant on that. <laughs> I, I am repenting my rant on... Inside. Anyway, any other picks, Dave? Nope, I'm out of picks. All right. Um, I'm going to jump in with a couple of picks. So I decided to go insane and I'm going to be running a marathon next year. Nice. So I'm going to sign up for the St. George Marathon. That's in St. George, Utah. If you don't know where it is, it's about, what, an hour and a half, two hours from Las Vegas. It's actually closer to Las Vegas than Salt Lake City. Anyway, it's got kind of a nostalgic thing for me. My dad, I remember my dad training for the St. George Marathon when I was a kid. And, you know, we lost him this year. So anyway, it's kind of a weird. I've always wanted to run a marathon and a way to connect with my dad and a bunch of other things. So anyway, I'm looking forward to that. That is in October. It's the first weekend in October. It's on Saturday. It's a beautiful area down there. St. George isn't that far from Zion National Park. So just to give you an idea of what we're looking at there. But uh, I also decided when I decided that I was going to run the marathon is that I really suck at sticking with running programs. So I'll run until I get basically either bored with it or I'm not quite sure what to do next. And so I'll quit doing it. And the other thing is, is it's nice having some kind of accountability. And so my friend John Sonmez talked me into hiring a running coach. And so um, if you go to McCurdy, that's M-C-K-I-R-D 
whytrained.com. I hired them. They're a hundred and something dollars a month to give me workouts every day. <laughs> so um, I'm doing what they told me. So yesterday, it was funny. I got on the treadmill because I, I won't run outside as cold as it is. Once it starts to warm up again in like February, March, I'll probably start running outside again. So I've been, I was on the treadmill and I did, I think like 2.7 miles or something in a half hour. And this, this morning I, I was uh, taking something downstairs from my wife and my quads were burning all the way down the stairs. And I was like, oh yeah, yeah, that's how this feels, this working out thing. But anyway, uh, really digging that. So I, I hired a trainer and I'm really liking getting coaching these days on things that I want to do. Um, for some of the other stuff like social media and things, I've been going to Clarity. That's clarity.fm. So that's my third pick. So if you're looking for coaching on, on like skills, then do that. And if you're looking for coaching on like running, yeah, you can go check out uh, McCurdy. It was funny because I submitted the form to get coaching and I got a call back from the guy, the CEO. <laughs> and he's like, yeah, uh, just wanted to talk to you for a minute before I assigned your coach. So um, it was terrific. They've been really, really good. And I'll probably pick some of my running gear next time. So uh, Nathan, do you have some picks for us? Sure, I got two picks. Um... First is uh, real maple syrup. If you haven't had the the real stuff, you gotta try. It's way better than the the fake corn syrup that you have. My uh, cousin has a small uh, syrup farm up north, so I go up in spring and help him make it. So um, definitely check that out. And then uh, next pick is uh, Ubiquity. Um, their network equipment. And, um, they make a lot of uh, Wi-Fi and wireless, like enterprise grade equipment. And I was looking for setting up a Wi-Fi network at my church. And it was just really hard to find what you could buy enterprise equipment directly from anyone. It seemed like you always had to request the quote or you know pay a service contract every year. And Ubiquity prices were great. You can just buy them off Newegg or Amazon. And um, the software they have that goes with it is pretty intuitive. It's um, pretty nice to set up. So if you're ever looking for, for a small business or even for your home, um, they're pretty nice stuff. Nice. All right, Nathan. Well, thank you for coming and talking to us. This has been really interesting just to kind of dive into maybe an angle that people don't think a lot about. Yeah, it's uh, it's definitely, I, I'm hoping to, to kind of spread uh, the joy of Ruby to people that are kind of locked into uh, the corporate world and kind of, kind of see how they can do that. So hopefully uh, this podcast kind of uh, maybe gives some people some ideas that they can share with uh, maybe their fellow uh, programmers that haven't seen the light yet. Yeah, well, and that's what these shows are really about for me anyway, is just that freedom, right? So, you know, is this going to make it better for you? Is it going to make life more enjoyable, work more enjoyable? Are you going to have, you know, better work relationships with your coworkers? Going to be able to get more done? I mean, all of that plays into this idea of, of freedom. So, yeah. All right, well, let's go ahead and wrap up and we will catch everybody next week. All right, talk to you later. Adios. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.